The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, you're listening to the Late Morning Program, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm super honored, super fanboying to our guest today, uh, Parmananda Prabhu, also known as John Porcel. Parmananda Prabhu, thank you so, many, so much for joining me. Nam Ras, I'm so happy to be here. I've always wanted to be on your podcast secretly, and Krishna is fulfilling my desire here. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just fanboying here with some, some merch and uh, shelter. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Parmananda Prabhu is one of the heads of shelter, the amazing, uh, along with Raghunath Prabhu, the amazing band that led so many people in the 90s in America and all over the world to join Krishna consciousness, to be connected with, uh, you know, Srila Prabhupada and the teachings and everything. And so, so much deep respect to Paramananda Prabhu for you to, uh, you know, getting that, uh, that whole thing, you know, going. And I want to hear all about it today because I've met you since I was a kid, you know, I was living in, I was living in around the Tawako Iskon temple and just seeing you all the time, but I never really got to know you and talk to you. So I'm really excited to, uh, you know, get to know you better here. So maybe we can start with, um, tell us about your upbringing, where you grew up and then what, uh, led you to kind of get interested in spirituality, Krishna consciousness. Kind of interesting. I grew up in Westchester. Have you ever been to Westchester? Like Westchester, New York? Uh, uh, yeah, above New York City, the kind of suburb, I, Westchester I was, County. I was born in Yonkers, actually. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah, wow. I was born in Yonkers, yeah. I was born in New Rochelle. Oh, right cool. Okay, so similar so, place. So my dad was, um, he was a pretty successful businessman. And I'm not quite sure what he did. He was a broker, whatever that means. <laughs> he never really talked about what he did or, you know, what his job was too much. But we lived in Westchester in a fairly affluent, you know, Westchester is, is affluent just in general. But, yeah. you know, we lived in a, in a pretty kind of like upper middle class uh, neighborhood and he made a lot of money and we had a really nice house. It was right on this beautiful forest. So, uh, it was a it was a pretty nice way to grow up. You know, there was like a ton of kids in the neighborhood. We all hung out. You know, you never you know, people are so disconnected these days. I was lucky enough to grow up in an actual neighborhood with right. kids. And like you could go to anybody's house and knock on the door and they'd come take take you in. They'd feed you. It was yeah. really like that type of neighborhood. And um, so it was. In one sense, it was it was nice. We had a beautiful lake, you know, that everybody would go to with a baseball field, and we all used to play down there. Um, but you know, usually with material life, you scratch a little bit underneath the surface, and then there's a lot of you know uh, pain and distress there. And so my you know my parents were they didn't get along whatsoever. Like some of my earliest memories were my parents like fighting just, you know, these crazy fights. And then finally, like when I was 10, um, they got divorced. And I could see that my father, even though he made a lot of money, was deeply unhappy. Like he would just come home from work. He worked in the city. He would come home really late. 
He was just super tired, didn't really talk. He was always grumpy. You ask Ruganath or any of my, you know, friends, you know, Ruganath did my dad well. He's just super grumpy. Like they hated coming over to the house. And I think that was like the first inkling of Krishna consciousness that I had, you know, because that's the American dream. You want to go out. You know, my dad actually, he had the American dream. He went out, went to college, straight out of college, got a good job, got married, had kids, lived in this beautiful house, had a, a you know, a couple of really nice cars, and it didn't translate into happiness. I, I felt bad for him actually. Right. And so even when I was growing up when I was like 15 and 16, I kind of understood that that's not really that that path isn't really gonna work. Like I could go to college and I could go out and get a job, and make money, do exactly the same thing that my dad did. But look at him. He's not happy. And even like a lot of my friends, fathers who, you know, were all super rich people, doctors, lawyers, things like that. They didn't seem happy. Like I would go over to their houses and meet their dads and their dads were always grumpy with, you know, a, you know, a bottle of beer kind of like, you know, at the TV, just, you know, Keep quiet. I'm trying to watch TV. <laughs> so uh, from a young age, I sort of had I, I, I had that, you know, inkling that material life wasn't necessarily going to pan out. And, and, you know, the American dream wasn't so rosy if you just kind of look underneath the hood. And I think that's what it, it at least kind of set me up for some sort of foundation to pick up on Krishna consciousness later. So it did, it did have an effect on me, you know, how I grew up. And you, were you a musician from a, from a young age? Oh yeah. I loved music from the time I was like even five or six years old when I didn't even really like know anything. I, I used to go through my dad's record collection and, you know, a lot of the kids in the neighborhood were older kids and I used to borrow like Led Zeppelin records from them and uh, ACDC records uh, and I just loved it. I, I really, really loved music as a kid growing up, even at a super young age. It was just kind of like, um, you know, past life or something or other. It was, you know, yeah. I was just, you know, nobody else in my family was really into music either. It wasn't like my dad was super into music or my brother. But for some reason, music just always like anything that I could get my hands on that was kind of rock and roll or guitar stuff. I was just super, super intrigued by it. And then I got it. And then I started taking um, guitar lessons and my dad bought me my first electric guitar when I was probably like, I think I was 14 or 15. Oh, wow. And by that time I was really into punk and all I wanted to do was be in a band. I don't even know where it came from, but I was just like obsessed with, I love all these bands. I want to do it too. I can play a few chords on this thing. Let's roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, even my friends, you know, my, my neighbors kind of played instruments too. And we used to have these concerts like in garages and stuff. We would invite the whole neighborhood and all the kids would come and the, you know, the, the parents would come. It was just some kind of weird destiny that I had to, to be in a band i feel right. i feel like it was like a divine arrangement for people to be connected to krishna consciousness through your music and you know everything that you tried to do did you know 
So when did you meet Raghunath then? Was that like when you were kids? I met Raghunath. I was pretty young. I was 16 years old and I was just super into punk, but my dad worked in the city and, you know, this is the eighties. So New York city in the eighties was a mess. You know, it was like urban blight. You know, if you drove through the Bronx, you would just see burnt out building after burnt out building after burnt out car. And then, you know, most of the punk shows were in the Lower East Side, like around CBGBs. And now, you know, that's neighborhood in the world. You know, you can't even afford to live there. You know, but back then it was all drug addicts, gangs. You know, Avenue A actually had gangs. Like, you know, you ever see the movie The Warriors? You probably yeah, never I saw love it. that movie. Oh, you have, you're a little deeper than I thought in American culture here. <laughs> I feel like you judged me a little at the beginning. <laughs> I thought you were like one of those little Indian kids, you know, grew up with Jalebis and, you know, Mahabharat. <laughs> I love that. I'm totally not that. I mean, I did grow up with Jalebis and Mahabharat, but like, I'm just an American guy, you know, like I, I went to public school my whole life. But uh, that's funny. I love that. So there was, there, I yeah. lived on Avenue A and there was yeah. actual gangs that had like leather vests with the patch on the back with the name of the gang. So they were all like Spanish kids. Wow. And it was dangerous, you know. So, you know, my dad realized that, you know, New York City is a dangerous place. He, I used to beg him to go to punk shows. And he was like, you're not going to go to some punk show in the Lower East Side of New York City. It's just like, forget it. Yeah. But but for some reason, there was punk shows in Connecticut. And, you know, my dad's just thinking, oh, Connecticut's like everybody's rich in Connecticut. So you can go to shows in Connecticut. So I started going to shows in Stanford. And the very first time I went to this club called the Anthrax, Rugganoth was there. And it, you know, life is so funny because me and Rugganoth, we must have been brothers in a past life mm. because I walked into the club. There was Raghunath and he was all punked out. He was wearing a, like a ripped up sort of punk version of a Boy Scout uniform. Like he, <laughs> like he must have went to like Goodwill or something. He found a Boy Scout uniform. He was wearing it, but it had like punk pins all over it and patches. Um, and he had a mohawk, but he's got like, but it was kind of like a longer mohawk and he's got curly hair. So it was sort of like this curly dyed black mohawk. But he had a skateboard and he had an X on his hand, which means he was straight edge. And I was also straight edge. And it was a very rare thing in the hardcore scene to find anybody with, that was straight edge. Like there was sort of this big kind of wave of straight edge when that band Minor Threat first came out with it in the really early 80s, like 81 and 82. And then by this time, I think, you know, this was, you know, mid 80s. It had kind of died out. But I was really into it. Like I loved all those minor threat records and I didn't like to drink. And um, so he had an X on his hand. And I walked in, I was like, oh my God, are you straight edge? And he was like, Yeah. And I had a skateboard. He was like, Oh my God, do you skate? And I was like, Yeah. And so we went outside and we instantly became like best friends, just like instantly from the first five seconds. Wow. It's just one of those things, you know, it's like uh you know, moment where you meet people from past lives and, you know, intertwining destinies and things like that. It was, um, it was strange. We became really like good friends from that moment on. And, and then, uh, and then you kind of, you've started a band. Was that youth of today? Was that the first band? 
Well, the first band that we started together was this band called Violent Children. He was in this band, Violent Children, and their guitar players went to college. So he asked me to join. But he didn't sing. He played drums. Oh. And we tried, you know, we actually got some good shows. We played with some bigger hardcore bands, but nothing ever happened for the band. Like nobody really liked us that much. And, you know, nobody was terribly excited to see us. And it wasn't like we were going to go on and, and do big things like whatsoever. Right. Um, so that band broke up. And Ruganoth came up to me. He's like, you know what? We should start a straight edge band, which was at the time was like a very re revolutionary thing because straight edge was, was pretty much dead. There wasn't any straight edge bands. And it almost seemed like straight edge was kind of a passe thing. Like, oh, that was something that happened a few years ago. And people don't really take that too seriously anymore. You know, everybody grew up and started drinking. And it was just kind of like, it almost seemed like it was a footnote in the history of hardcore. Uh, but, you know, me and Rugg and I were, you know, we were just super into not drinking. We thought it was a great idea. We thought drugs and alcohol were horrible. You go to these punk shows where people are just like drugged out of their minds. And we we're just like, oh my God, this is terrible. Yeah. So we, so it was weird. We kind of had this idea that we were going to start this band and we were going to bring straight edge back. And we wanted to be, you know, some of our, of our favorite bands were like Seven Seconds, I don't know if you've heard of those bands, but they were the first hardcore bands to come out. Like punk rock was very kind of um, nihilistic and very political. But this band Seven Seconds was very positive and they talked about, you know, positive mental attitude. And they talked about, um, they even had a few straight edge songs, even though all the band members weren't straight edge. And it was all about trust and caring and love. You know, most of the things that hardcore bands were like, you know, too hard to talk about. Right. And we were really inspired by them too. So our idea was to make this really hardcore sounding band, um, but give it a positive spin and really, really promote straight edge. And it's so crazy because we were just like, you know, I was barely 18 at the time. He was, when we started the band, I was 18 and he had just turned 19. And we had this idea that we were just going to bring back Straight Edge and we were going to do this band and it was going to be huge and we were going to influence everybody and we were going to tour and we were going to spread this positive message. And it was just me and him in his bedroom kind of writing songs, but we had this idea and it's so fascinating because it just kind of manifested. It you know, was it's quite, quite a famous band, right? Yeah, in the hardcore scene, it was very famous. In the hard, yeah, in the hardcore scene, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like we were super famous outside of punk, but you know, if you go on Spotify, I think you know, Youth Today has hundreds of thousands of of listens. Like to um, this the, day, that's amazing. That's amazing after so many years. The, the Youth of Today video on YouTube has close to a million views, which is kind of like wow. Some band that I did like when I was 18 and could you know barely play guitar, and now it's got this video that millions of people have seen. Wow. But it's really it's really wild to think that everything starts with an idea. You know, even Prabhupada had the idea, I'm gonna go to America and I'm gonna fulfill the order of my spiritual master. And he actually did it. It's kind of a wild story. <laughs> you know, we had this similar thing. We kind of cooked up this idea in, in his bedroom that we we're gonna do the straight edge band and we were gonna 
revitalized straight edge. And then six months later, it, you know, the band was super popular. Was there, was there any conception of God in at that point for you, for Raghunath or for the, for the band's lyrics or anything? Not at all. But Raghunath was kind of a closet spiritualist. <laughs> and I, and I learned it later because I remember, uh, somebody the first time i ever even knew this like we never talked about god or like really took it seriously or went to church or you know yeah. we we're a bunch of kids um but i remember um there was a there was a there was a fanzine called maximum rock and roll which was like a huge fanzine it went all around the world like people from all around the world would read this and the punk scene it was sort of like before the internet you would read Maximum Rock and Roll. You could find out what was going on in the punk scene all around the world. It was kind of cool. And so somebody wrote in a letter. Someone wrote in a letter saying something about the Bad Brains because the Bad Brains were a huge hardcore band. And they used to talk about spirituality and God in their lyrics. Mm. And someone had said, look, you know, the Bad Brains will talk about God. I don't want to hear it. You know, keep God out of punk and you know, stupid stuff like that. Right. And Raghunath, Ray Capo back then, he wrote a letter back to them. And they printed it in Maximum Rock and Roll. And he didn't even tell me that he wrote it or he didn't discuss it with me or anything. I just was reading Maximum Rock and Roll and I saw it. And it said, I don't know why everybody's giving the bad brains, you know, so much crap about, you know, their spiritual views. I think spiritual views are great. And I think, you know, the Bible, it just talks about all this good stuff, like, you know, being kind to other people and, you know, being honest and what's wrong with that. And I read it and I was kind of shocked. <laughs> I was like, wow, you know, we had never discussed anything like that before. And that was the first kind of thing that I had heard of him talking about spiritualities. And it was, uh, you know, it was just a side of him. You know, I, I wasn't really shocked because I knew he was into all that, you know, positive living and honesty and being kind and compassionate. You know, that was really the, the crux of what Youth Today was all about. Mm -hmm. It was almost about religious principles without the religion. Right. Um, but that was the first time he actually talked about that. And, and it kind of, I kind of made the connection that, you know, this was kind of just, he got all this stuff from his, you know, Catholic, you know, growing up Catholic. Right. When, so what, with the success of youth of today, how did you deal with that? Like what kind of, what, what did that bring the success? Like, do you traveled and you, did you go all over the world with that? Or was that later on? We definitely went all over the country really quick. You know, it's, um, it's weird how destiny works because we, you know, we slugged it out. I was in bands before Violent Children, and then we got into Violent Children. For, for me, that was like, oh, this is kind of like my big break. I'm going to be in this band that have, they have a record out. You know, they actually had a, a record out. Yeah. And it just kind of fizzled and it didn't really go anywhere. But then we started this band, Youth of Today, and Raghunath moved to vocals. And it just seemed from the first second things just started to just take off like a jet airplane. It was really weird. It was almost like, you know, people talk about destiny, but it was almost like that. It was almost like, you know, the pieces of this puzzle kind of came together 
And it just ignited something that took our lives in a completely you know, different trajectory, like this upward thing where the band got really popular really quick. It was almost like even at our first show, the band was insanely popular. By the second, by the third show, everybody saw, do you ever see that band Youth today? Oh my God, you gotta see that band Youth today. Like people were talking about the band when we, you know, when we were a band for like a month. Wow. Part of the reason was Raganath was such an incredible frontman. I mean, he really, really, really was super charismatic. Yeah. Pure super good on stage. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, and plus, you know, back then he's 19 years old. He's just filled with youthful, you know, energy and, you know, um, uh, uh, enthusiasm. And he was, and he was, and he could jump and he could jump really high and he would jump off things. And so I think that had a lot to do with it, but it just seemed like, wow, it just, things just happened really, really, really fast. We did our first West coast tour within six months. I mean, that's unheard of. We didn't even have a record out. Um, and then by the time we had a record out, we did a tour, uh, and it was just like, it's so weird because, you know, this is pre-internet. This is pre, you know, cell phones. Yeah. And, you know, we would just like, here we are. We're just some band that, you know, me and Ragnar cooked up in his bedroom. And we would go to places like Virginia Beach and there'd be hundreds of kids there like, yes, so psyched <laughs> to see us. You know, we'd go, we play Miami. There's kids, you know, with X's on their hands, just like so super stoked that we were there. And it was really it was far out, especially for an 18 year old kid, because I always wanted to be in a band. I was always obsessed with music and it just seemed like I got in this band and Rugnoff moved to vocals and something clicked and then bam, all my dreams were starting to be fulfilled. And now, uh, did you, did you in the lyrics preach like straight edge principles? Like, okay, the X is on the hand. They, everyone knew what that was. Like even on the young kids. Oh yeah. Everybody knew that the X-Men straight edge. Yeah. Um, one of the lyrics was one of the lyrics to one of our first songs we ever wrote was X on my hand. Now take the oath to positive youth, to positive growth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's good. <laughs> you know, that's was, uh, you know, so we were, you know, we were definitely championing that right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of kids got into it. There was a lot of kids that were just ready to hear that. And why? Why was that? I, I um, that's so fascinating to me. What do you think that? What was the reason for for people to be interested in Straight Edge? I think part of the reason was, you know, just going to shows back then. Things were super violent, super violent. The first time I went to CBGBs, I went in. I saw the first band. And then as I was like walking outside to get some air, there was a skinhead and his girlfriend and he had a big, huge wine bottle in his hand. He was holding it by like, you know, upside down, like he's going to clock somebody with it. And his girlfriend's going, not him, not him, not him. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm in line. You're kind of like CBGB's had this very narrow doorway where you had to go in single file. And I was like, Oh my God, what if she says him and he hits me with that bottle? Finally, I get to him. She's like, not him. And then a couple of guys behind me was another skinhead. The guy with the bottle, his name was Tony Ultraviolence. Okay, that'll tell you a little something. 
And the guy behind me, the skinhead, was called Steve Hate. <laughs> you know, so as soon as Steve Hate came, she goes, him. And he smashed the bottle over his head and cr cracked his whole head open. The guy's head was bleeding. It was just, it was nuts. Wow. For, for me, it was kind of exciting. Like, right. it was almost living in a movie. Like, my, my, my friends aren't going to believe this when I go to math class on Monday. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Right. Um, but it was really, it was violent. There was a ton of drugs and not only, not only just like kids getting drunk. I mean, the punk scene was like dude sniffing glow, doing heroin, oh, man. you know, um, uh, PCP was big, like angel dust and PCP and all this crazy, like the, like the kind of new chemical drugs that were coming up. Yeah. And, uh, it it wasn't, you know, of course that stuff is going to spur a lot of just mode of ignorance behavior and things. And I think there was a lot of kids that were attracted to energetic, fun, rebellious music, but they weren't into the mode of ignorance, you know, which was kind of taking over the scene at the time. Mm. So. Then, then how did you get in touch with um, like, when did Krishna consciousness come into the picture? Pretty early on, actually, we did a uh, one of our our big record came out. We had like a little record, a single that came out first, and then our our next full length album came out. That was called Break Down the Walls, and we had bought a van for it. And I forget how much money we spent. We spent like three thousand dollars on this van, and the van didn't even make it to the first show. And so we had no van. And so Sachi Suta, do you know Sachi Suta who runs yeah, Equivision and Merch course, now? Yeah. yeah. He was a guy that used to set up shows in Albany. And so he used to set up shows for us. And so we, we just became friends with him. Yeah. And he had a van. So we were going to cancel the tour. And he called us up and he was like, hey, man, I got a van. I'll, I'll take you guys on tour with my van. And one of the first places we played was Miami. And I'm not sure how Sachi Suta and Raghunath really kind of got into the Krishna thing. Mm -hmm. But they, but in Miami, there used to be a temple that was right on the beach. Oh my God, it was so cool. It's not there anymore, but it was like an old hotel that somehow or other the devotees had bought. Right. And it was like, it was literally right on the beach. Like if they had it today, it'd be worth who knows how many hundreds of millions of dollars that property was worth. Yeah. Um, but they went. And I remember I was like, wow, that's so weird. They're going to the Hare Krishna temple. And they're like, yeah, pick us up. You know, I think they actually stayed there. I think we played a show. They stayed overnight at the temple. And they're like, yeah, pick us up in the morning. So we drove the van and we picked them up at the Hare Krishna temple. And I remember thinking, this is so weird. Like, why would they want to stay at a Hare Krishna temple? I didn't really even know much about it. Yeah, yeah. But I just, you know, I knew it was kind of like a religious thing. And so I was like, why would these guys stay there? But they, you know, and that was pretty, that was even pretty early on in, you know, Yuthate's career. So they were into it pretty early on. And Raghunath just kept getting more and more and more and more into it. Um, by the time we did our very last tour, he had a Sika. He was shaved up. He had went to Vrindavan. 
he went to Vrindavan and he um, he spent like he went there with Braj Bihari actually. He didn't really Braj know Braj Braj Bihari was going, and somehow he met him at like the Brooklyn Temple or something. Braj Bihari's like, I'm going to India. Do you want to come with me? Oh so, so Raghunath went, not even knowing Braj Bihari. He was just like, you know, Raghunath's just some hardcore kid. Wow. And uh, he went there. He spent, I, I think, like the first night he got there, it was the appearance day of Radha Kund. And he went with Donadar Swami, and I believe, and Sachi Nandana Swami. Wow. And he went to the appearance of Radha Kund and stayed up till midnight and then bathed with all the sadhus. I mean, wild, right? He's just a parkour wild. kid plucked out of the New York hardcore scene. And, you know, the next day he's in Radha Kund. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. So, so he came back to, from Vrindavan and he was really, he was just, that was it. He was, this was the thing that he was just dedicated to. And um, after the tour, the the band like from the time that we started the band the band just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and we put out a record now and, and then it would be get bigger and then we put out another record and then it would get out bit and get, you know get even bigger and then we toured all over the united states then we toured europe and like it just seemed like the it just and then like um, even like major labels were calling up after the band like kind of like looking into the band wow and we just thought this thing is going to explode. Like we were just so psyched. And then we, you know, we went on this whole European tour. No bands, practically no bands from the hardcore scene toured Europe. We were one of like the first hardcore bands to do it. Oh, that's there was like there was like bigger punk bands like the Dead Kennedys and you know some of these more like super famous punk bands. But we were like really one of the first hardcore bands to tour there. Yeah. And it was incredible. You know, we went on this tour. Everybody loved us. Everybody was like kind of enamored with us. And then right after the tour, Raghunath quit. He's like, I'm going to become a, a Krishna devotee. And we were like, what? Things are getting so like, who knows where we're going to be next year? Like, yeah. We thought we were going to take We thought that straight edge was going to take over the whole world. And we were going to bring it to the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And he quit. As a matter of fact, you know, when he got initiated, he got the name Raghunath because, and he was named, it wasn't named after Lord Ram, it was named after Raghunath Dasko Swami. Because oh. Raghunath Dasko Swami had everything. Yes. He was, and he gave it up for, you know, <laughs> for Krishna. Wow. So it was almost like the same thing. Like Raghunath was in this super successful band. At that point, we were even starting to make actual money. Like, you know, we would play shows and we would get like, you know, it wasn't a ton of money, but we, you know, for us to play a show and get and get paid like a few thousand dollars, you multiply that times, you know, you go on tour and you play 200 shows, yeah, you know, you're, 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 a, you're, I'm a 20 year old kid and I'm making more money than I ever thought I'd ever make in my life, you know, <laughs> and Raghunath just kind of threw in the towel and was just like, no, I want to be a devotee. It was, um, did you try to convince him like, Hey, oh no, my God, oh, we tried everything. Are you kidding? <laughs> because the whole band, you know, he, you know, the whole band you know, was centered on him. Yeah, yeah. Without him, you know, we're, we're not going to have the band. Yeah. We tried, we tried everything. We tried everything, but in a way I actually respected him. 
because he was just so into this thing and you know he was ready he was willing to just give up his life for it and you know you got to kind of admire that totally totally and it, it also kind of intrigued me like what is this thing that's so captured him that here he is he's a guy that always wanted to be in a band always wanted to be a front man was a, was an incredible front man and he just gave it all up for this thing that i didn't really know too much about like what is it that's got him so enamored that he's literally ready to give up you know fame money band family you know to go sleep on a floor in a krishna temple and it, it it made me curious actually and did you did you immediately were like oh maybe i should try this too or did it take some time before you i mean did you join the ashram there with with him no no i i probably joined i think i joined the ashram like a couple of years later oh okay and um it's it's it was strange for me because you know all this all this stuff like you know bhakti tirta swami if you've if you've ever met him do you ever meet him he oh went of course to yeah, yeah. yeah. if you know bhakti tirta swami he's very very mystical yeah like super mystical and one time he told me in raghunath that we were devotees in our past life so i think i just had that like inside of me and it was really weird because I didn't get into it then. But then like a couple of years later, I don't know what clicked in my mind. I was mad after spiritual life. And I didn't, it wasn't even necessarily a devotee. I was just like, I've tried everything to be happy in this world, everything. And I feel like there's a piece of the puzzle missing. It must be spirituality. Cause that's the only thing I haven't tried yet, yeah. you know? And so I used to go to this um, bookstore, East West Books. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was one of these, you know, new age bookstores. Yeah. And I used to, I, I would read for like literally like four hours a day. I would just take out these books, Taoism. I want to learn all about Taoism, you know, American Indian spirituality. Like I couldn't get enough. Of, I was just reading and reading and reading. And I was so intrigued by everything. Buddhism. Um, and I really liked everything, but you know what's so great about Krishna consciousness? You can actually practice it. You know what I mean? There's a practice. There's people that you can learn it from. You can go to an ashram. You know, even these, I mean, in my day, you had to join an ashram to practice it. But nowadays, you know, it's so wonderful that you have places like the Bhakti Center. And just how ISKCON has, has gotten to a different place now that you don't have to give everything up and shave your head and put on a really funny looking orange robe, <laughs> you know, to learn about bhakti. You can just go to these places and you can learn how to practice it. You can go there and practice it. And there's kirtans and there's online seminars. You know, there was none of that. Yeah. So um, I always tell this story, though. The thing that really pushed me over the edge was, you know, I was still really into hardcore, but I, uh, I got beat up by about 10 skinheads. I just got jumped at a bad brain show and they beat me up like really, really, really bad because I was straight edge. They hated straight edge people because they're, you know, 
all drunk and everything. <laughs> so to them, I represented straight edge. So when they saw me, they decided they were going to jump me. And um, at that time, too, the hardcore scene was was once again becoming super violent. Um, I almost got beat up again. I I managed to like, uh, you know, I was like a straight edge kid and all these like new thuggy kind of kids in the hardcore scene, they hated straight edge. So it was like I had a target on my back. I almost got beat up again. I narrowly escaped. I almost got knifed and I narrowly escaped. And so the hardcore scene wasn't like this family where everybody supported each other like it used to be. And, you know, all these cool ideas were bouncing around by all these progressive bands and vegetarianism and different ways of living and looking at the world. You know, that was the hardcore scene that I grew up in. And it was kind of, it was pretty wonderful. Um, and people looked out for each other. It just started not becoming like that. And it was a world that I no longer really wanted to live in. And then uh, Sachi Suta was, you know, his guru Satsarut Maharaj. And he said, my guru's having a birthday party at the temple. Do you want to come? And I was kind of getting into Krishna. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll go. Sounds like fun. I'm thinking, I'm thinking birthday party, you know presents big party cake it's gonna be fun (laughs) you know i don't know yeah and um, he said okay but you have to come and it starts at 4 30 in the morning and i was like birthday party starts at 4 30 in the morning i was like whatever i'm up for it (laughs) so we went to the brooklyn temple and we went there for and the temple was packed there was so many people there for satsuru maharaj's you know vyasa puja I had no idea that it was like this whole kind of Vedic ritual when your guru's on your guru's appearance day. I just, I didn't know what to think. Birthday party at 4.30 in the morning. So we went there. We went to Mandalartik. I really loved it. I, ha- I had actually been to, a, to the Christian temple for a couple of kirtans, but I never went for like Mandalartik. You know, I'm a musician. I never wake up early. But, you know, when you wake up at Mongol Arctic, that Brahma Mahorta time, there's something so special about it. Totally. totally. It's just peaceful and the lights are low. And, you know, they're singing these beautiful songs that I couldn't understand. But there's obviously some, you know, devotion in the air from these songs. So the deities were beautiful. And you know, Radha Govinda, they always had amazing flowers. And I was like, wow, look at all these flowers. And so <laughs> I, I really loved it. I loved it. And then yeah. afterwards, the Vyasa Puja started, and all the people were giving their offerings. And I just couldn't believe these people were just pouring their heart out with tears in their eyes. Thank you so much, Guru Dave. You saved my life. My life was going in this direction. And then you came along, you entered into my life, and now my life is so much better. And I feel like you're pulling me right out of the material world, and I'm eternally grateful to you. Like, I never heard people speak to other people like this before in my whole entire life. I really didn't. You know, I grew up an American kid. You know, the the adults in my life were just doing nothing but fighting. <laughs> and, you know, it was part of like American culture that you just make fun of your friends. I mean, we would just, you know, get together with our friends, just make fun of each other mercilessly. We yeah. never talk nicely about anybody, you know? And here are these people just like so much gratitude and love, just like pouring their hearts out. And it, it was like, I, I never experienced anything like that. 
there was really there was just like there was so much love in that temple room you could feel it you know real true love and devotion being expressed by all dozens and dozens and dozens of people for Satsuru Maharaj. You know, Satsuru Maharaj is staying is in the big chair. He's a sannyasi. He's got the stick. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't wait to hear what he was gonna say. Because I had this idea that he was like Buddha. And that when the words were going to come out of his mouth, like just like self-realization was just going to spill out of his mouth. And he was going to give all these instructions on how to be liberated from the material world. <laughs> and so, and, you know, so finally, after a really long time, it was Satsuru Maharaj's turn to speak. And wow, he blew my mind. He, he was just so humble. And he just said, Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm so humbled by all of your gratitude and, you know, all the kind words that you've said to me. And he said, I would just like to take all of the appreciation that you've given me. And I would just want to, and I just want to pass that to my guru, Srila Prabhupada, because I was a confused, lost kid when I was young. And I didn't know what life was about. And I, I was in so much material distress. And then Prabhupada picked me up right out of the material world. And he gave me, uh, you know, deep spirituality. And everything that's good in, that you see in me is just what my guru gave me. So I just, you know, when I hear this, I, I'm just thinking in my mind that this all goes right to my guru, Srila Prabhupada. Wow. And I was like, Wow like genuinely like you know i thought he was going to be this big kind of like i don't know kind of christ-like figure like he would take the praise and and just you know A exactly like i'm the big deal and now let me teach you right right but he just had this humility that he was also a devotee you know he also had a guru and he also had gratitude to his guru yes and it just, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. And by the time I walked out of there, I was just like, I want what these people have. Like these people have something deep and real. And it's just not some kind of cult-like thing where people are jumping around the streets. Like this is real. And wow. that's what really made me laugh. And then it wasn't too long after that where, um, Sachi was like, hey, I'm, I'm moving to Gitanagri. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, yes. <laughs> so I came, I gave up everything, gave up my apartment, sold all my records, sold everything. And um, I took that jump. That's, that's really amazing that you remember that Vyasa Puja experience after all these years. Vividly. It, it made such an impression on me. Right. It was one of those really, it was like a milestone turning point in my life, for mm -hmm. sure, was at Vyasa Puja. When you joined Gitanagri, what did your parents think? Uh, I didn't even tell my parents. I was sort of estranged from my parents anyway, because yeah. I didn't go to college and I was do, off doing this crazy punk thing, which they 1000% didn't approve of. Really? <laughs> Even oh if, yeah! Even though you were making money and traveling and fame oh, and everything, my, my dad was this like old school 
Italian dad that, you know, being a man meant you went out and you got a family and you made money and like you just put your nose to the grindstone and, you know, you had a crappy job and you just worked it and shut up and, you know, kind of like that, you know, very, you know, and, you know, when I was young, he was like very strict. By the time I became a teenager, I think he just kind of like gave up on parenting and just kind of checked out and didn't didn't really worry too much. But, you know, when I was young, he was super, he was just a super strict kind of old school Italian guy. Yeah. And you can imagine his son blows off college and goes on tour with a, a hardcore band, you know, which is just a bunch of screaming to him. Right. So you know, it was just so far out of his paradigm that he just couldn't understand it. And it really kind of drove a wedge in between us. So I didn't even really tell him. Like at that point, I really wasn't really you know, speaking to him that much or didn't see him. And then when I, I always tell this story, I was in Bhagavatam class and Mother Kalini, did you ever meet Mother Kalini? Of course, yeah. Yeah, wonderful, saintly woman. I loved Mother Kalini. Wow. She was so, she took care of me at Kitanagri when I was just this young kid that didn't know anything. I wouldn't have made it if it wasn't for Mother Cleaning. Wow. She would like, she knew if I was having a hard time, she'd cook something special for me. She'd make me things and she'd make, she knew I like sweet rice. So she would make like a whole bunch, you know, sweet rice isn't something that you could just whip together. Yeah, it takes a while. You know, she'd be like, oh, that new kid, Bakta Purcell, let me do something nice for him. She'd make me sweet rice. So oh. she was really, really wonderful. Um, so one day I'm in Bhagavatam class and she comes out and she says, Dr. Purcell, you have a phone call. And I was like, a phone call? Like, I'm in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania right now. Like, who is calling me? <laughs> and I was like, who is it? She goes, oh, it's your father. And I immediately, like, I just started sweating. I was like, oh, my God, it's my father. What am I going to say to him? I'm shaved head, orange doty well i wasn't wearing white yet i was, wasn't probably yet. i was like you know white doty i'm like living at some farm and i picked up the phone he was like john what's going on with you it took me weeks to track you down you're living at some farm like some like what's going on with you like what is up <laughs> and i didn't really know what to say to him but i was just like you know dad I'm just, uh, I got tired of living in the city and now I'm like way out in the country and it's beautiful here and it's the fresh air. And I just needed kind of like a break from city life and touring. And I'm with a bunch of like really interesting people and I'm learning all this interesting stuff. And, uh, and he was like, Oh, 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 okay. Oh, oh." and then I was like, okay, dad, well, I'm kind of in the middle of class right now. So I got to go. And he goes, John, just tell me one thing. You're not going to join the goddamn Hare Krishnas, are you? <laughs> I just, I almost laughed because I just looked down at myself, you know, in the robe. And I just said, sorry, dad, too late. I already have. <laughs> I said, I got to go. And I kind of like hung up the phone. Oh my God. What a story. I love that. Oh, my poor dad. My poor dad. Wow. What was he thinking? He, I mean, he, he just thought the cult got him, you know, yeah. sure. That's what he thought. And, and so how long did you stay in Gitanagari and all that? And like, did you stay only in Gitanagari? Did you move other places to stay, join other no. ashrams and stuff? 
I only stayed at Gita Nagri. And at the time, there was barely anybody at Gita Nagri. It was literally the only pe- And they had a lot of cows back then. Right. I forget how many cows. I think it was like 150 cows, which is like, dude, you ever try to take care of 150 cows? That's crazy. It takes like a small army to take care of 150 cows. And the only people that were working at the farm were basically me and Sachi Suta. Wow. So working at the farm meant you did the morning program and then you didn't even, we didn't even like really spend a lot of time for breakfast. We'd wolf down breakfast and then we would go straight to the barn. I took care of the cow barn. He took care of the bull barn and we were working all day long, like hard manual labor, shoveling, you know, chopping down trees, you know, putting up fences, planting. Um, I actually really liked it. Yeah. I, I, I really like, you know, because I'm sort of like a guy that likes to work out Yeah. and forget about CrossFit. You want to get jacked, go work at a farm. Yeah. It's like doing CrossFit all day long. Like literally <laughs> my day, my day started with shoveling cow manure. You know, they had like this cow barn, the cows had their stalls and then there would be like gutters mm. where, you know, the cows would poop in. And, you know, you wake up in the morning, these gutters and like the cow barn's big. And like, I used to have to shovel by hand all the cow poop into the tractor. And it took me like two hours. That was the first thing that I would do. Like by, you know, like eight o'clock, I've already shoveled for two hours, you know, like sweating. And that's just, it's eight o'clock. I still got 10 more hours, you know, 10, 12 more hours to go. Wow. Um, The only thing that I didn't like about it was. I barely saw anybody. It was super isolated living, you know, because sometimes I would pass Sachi Suta or sometimes like, you know, we would bail hay together. And, you know, but for the most part, I was just really kind of just by myself, like all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't really learning much. You know, I was doing a lot of service, but usually there wasn't anybody to give class at Nagri. So the class meant we would just listen to a tape of Prabhupada, like a lecture of Prabhupada. Right. And it's just not the same when you have like a person that's there and you can engage with an actual person. You know, like you're listening to a tape. I'm really tired. Yeah. I can barely understand what Prabhupada is saying. So most of the time I'm just kind of like just tired and like, oh God, I gotta go out and shovel for two hours, you know? <laughs> so I wasn't, re- I wasn't you know, I didn't really, you know, I was still a kid that didn't know really too much about the philosophy of Krishna. That came when I moved to Philadelphia. And then when I moved to Philadelphia to join Shelter, you know, my guru, Ravinda Saruprabhu, was a temple president. And I don't know if you've ever heard one of his classes, but of his course. classes are just like mind blowing. Like I yes. felt like I was in college. I felt like I was in college studying Hinduism. Right. Because he's just such a, he's like a professor, you know? And, and he gave class practically every morning. So it was, it was like incredible. Like I'd wake up and you would have this, you know, college level class on Bhakti every single morning. And he's so eloquent and so, and such a good speaker. I was like, I couldn't wait for that class. Wow. And so I really, that's when I started to really learn a lot about the process of Krishna consciousness. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for him. Yeah. I'm hearing a lot. I'm hearing a lot from you. Like you're very curious, inquisitive. You didn't really find fault 
seems like with much, you kind of were just like taking it all in. I feel like that's a big part of being a devotee. And like, even in the beginning, mostly in the beginning of Christian consciousness, like if you don't find fault and if you, you look at the kind of like the positives, there's so much that you can get when you don't do those things. You miss out on so much when you don't do those things, right? It's so true. It's so true. And um, I think I did have kind of like a good attitude. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I, I wanted to learn, you know, engage me in service. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was just, you know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm just eternally grateful to my guru because, you know, some people they have, you know, they have gurus that, um, you know, they don't really see that much or they haven't really like personally studied under, but, you know, Ravina Prabhu, he was like my teacher, yeah. you know, it was almost like going to school and he was the teacher. And so there was that natural kind of guru student relationship with him. Yeah. And, and yeah. How long were you in Philadelphia for? I think I lived there for three years and then shelter signed to that big record label Roadrunner. So we moved to New York. Um, and that's when things really started taking off for the band. That's when the band started really getting big. And, and so uh, did you not, did you, so Raghunath had to like, did you reconnect with him? And, and then he was like, oh, well, let's do this band, sh another band. You never heard that story? No, no. Tell it, please tell us. <laughs> uh, Raghunath came to, Raghunath, uh, had quit shelter to, to start 108 so shelter didn't have a guitar player so they were looking everywhere for a guitar player and it's like you know who are you gonna get you know, there's not many hardcore -y type of guitar players with hardcore chops that are devotees you know because right. people can say what they want about hardcore oh it's simple music it's this it's that hardcore is very hard to play like there's like there's a lot of just intricacies with the picking and first of all it's really really fast like when madu joined shelter you know madu joined shelter like a, a few years ago madu's an incredible guitar player he's an incredible musician he could sit down to the piano and he can play like beethoven right. he can pick up he can pick up practically he's just a natural musician he can pick up anything and he could just start playing it yeah. He can play an acoustic guitar and he can play stuff that I could never even dream of playing if I practiced a hundred years. <laughs> right. But when I tried to teach him those shelter songs, he had the hardest time because it's very, very intricate. It's very, very technical. It's so fast that it goes by and you might not notice it, wow. but I'm telling you to play hardcore. It's, it's an art form. It really is. Especially the stuff that we were playing in shelter, which is very like, there's small little things that people may not even pick up on, but they're, you know, and they're very, very quick and they're very fast and they're weird timing and mm -hmm. it's kind of difficult to play. So they didn't have a guitar player and they were looking around everywhere for somebody that was going to play guitar. And then some hardcore kid at the Philadelphia temple said, Hey man, the guitar player from youth today is a devotee. He's living at Kitanagri. Why don't you just get him? <laughs> and Raghunath was like, that can't be true. But he was like, maybe it's true. So he called up the temple and he said, Hey, is there this guy, John Purcelli, living at the temple? And they said, oh, I don't. And the guy that, first of all, in those days, there was one phone at Kitanagri. No one ever answered the phone. 
it was in like an office. There was never anybody in the office. Nobody answered that phone like ever. And so finally, after weeks of him trying to call the temple, somebody picked up the phone and the, I don't know who he talked to, but they were like, yeah, there is a new kid here. I don't really know his name. And he said, what does he look like? And I said, what does he look like? And the guy on the phone said, he kind of looks like you, Ruganoff. <laughs> and so just on that scanty information, Ruganoff's like, we're packing it up and we're going to get an agri. We're going to see if he's really living there. Wow. And so Raghunath came there. And I remember he came there and with Krishna Chaitanya and Akindra. And um, I'm just pulling up. A, I'm just pulling up a photo here. Can yeah. You, can you those were this? the guys that came. <laughs> those three guys. I was in the barn. Doubling cow poop. And they pulled up into the barn and they were just like, and they wanted to take me back to Philadelphia right then and there. They're like, come on, join shelter. And I was like, I was like, I don't know what to tell you, man. I am not going back to that hardcore scene. Like I'm thinking getting beat up, almost getting stabbed. Oh, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was thinking, I'm not going to jump back into the hardcore scene. But, you know, Raghunath, he can be super persuasive. It was actually a big point of controversy. Um, because the people at Gita Nagri, the temple president of Gita Nagri, was super pissed at Raghunath because I'm doing 10 hours of work a day and yeah. there's nobody else to do it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what's going to happen to the cow barn if I leave? Like, who's going to take care of those cows? Who's going to shovel the poop? You know, who's going to, um, you know, I was milking the cows. I was, you know, I was doing a ton of work. And, um, but, you know, Raghunath is pressing hard. We need this guy. This is the guy. This is the missing piece that we need for shelter. We're <laughs> preaching to all these kids. We forget about Gita Nagri. This is bigger than Gita Nagri, you know. That, so yeah. Raghunath was going super hard, and so there was a big controversy. That was funny because um, Ravinda Sharup came to the farm, and he was going to sort of figure this whole thing out. And it was like a raging debate that was going on for weeks and the temple presence come up and you're not going to philly and i'm so mad at the philadelphia temple they're trying to poach devotees that's like an old school dirty move that we don't do anymore <laughs> you know <laughs> and um it was a big 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 controversy and i like i was sort of caught in the middle of it and i was just like whoa like i don't know what's like I don't want to like cause any trouble, you know. And, Weren't you and, feeling like I'm not a child, like I can go wherever I want to? Well, it's funny because Ravinda Sharup pulled up one day and you know, and everybody's saying he's a big deal, he's a GBC, you gotta treat him with respect. And I think the people at Gitanagri thought that he was gonna roll in and be like, Of course he should stay at Gitanagri. Yeah. You know, I, I really think that they thought that he was going to come in and, and side with them. So they were very happy for him to come. And uh, it, it's amazing how little I knew. <laughs> because, uh, do you know that, you know, the devotee Muktavanya that lived at Gitanagri? He, oh, he used to sell the flowers and he practically single-handedly supported the, the whole entire farm. Sounds familiar. He would sell flowers and just give all the money to the, to the temple. He's a great soul. 
And so I remember he was chesting. He's like, when you get in there, you better not sit on a chair. Do not sit on a chair. You don't want to sit at the same level as a, you know, a GBC. <laughs> and when you sit on the floor, do not sit like this. Do not point your feet at Ravinda Shrooprabhu. That's offensive. And so he's going down this laundry list of offensive things that I could <laughs> possibly do to Ravinda Shrooprabhu. And I'm just like, and this is like 10 minutes before I'm about to go in. And I'm like, I'm stressed out enough over this whole thing. And I'm thinking, okay, don't do this. Don't point the feet. Don't do that. Don't, you know? And then when I, and then I walked in and there was Ravina Srupuri sitting in a chair at a desk. And then there's a chair in front of the desk. And he said, oh, please sit down. And motioning to the chair. And I'm thinking, oh my God, don't sit in the chair. I can't sit in the chair. And I was literally like frozen, like, I can't sit in the chair, but he's telling me to sit in the chair. What am I going to do? And I was literally like, I, there must have been some sort of look of just like trauma on my face or something. Because he was like, it's okay. Please just sit in the chair. It's it's okay. Right, right. So I sat in the chair, but I felt really weird. And I was thinking, Mukta Vanya is going to kill me because I'm sitting in the chair. And then so he said, so you caused quite a stir. <laughs> and um then he, the, the, the first question that he asked me, I felt like was so nice. I thought the first question he asked me was, so what do you want to do? Right. And I was just thinking like, wow, like nobody during this whole controversy, nobody ever asked me what I wanted to do. Yeah. You're you know, just so I, the workhorse in some yeah, ways. Yeah. I was just some kind of like you know, cog in a machine that, you know, two temples were like fighting over. Right. And, and when he said that to me, I was like, I immediately liked him, mm. you know, because I didn't know what to expect. I thought he was going to order me to stay here for the rest of my life. Like, you know, you never know what to expect, but he was like, what do you want to do? And, uh, I just honestly told him, I said, you know, I really like, you know, I don't mind doing the work here. I said, the thing that I really don't like about it is, you know, I'm like a people person. Like I like to be around people and, you know, I was always in bands and friends and this, and like, I just said, it's super isolated here. And, um, you know, I just kind of wish there was more people here. And when he heard that, he said, you know what? I think you'd be better in Philadelphia. There are a ton of there's a, there's a ton of people that live in the temple that are young kids at your age that you that you're going to be able to relate to. They're all into music. There's tons of young kids. It's a very vibrant place. He just said, for you, I think that you are actually going to do better at the Philadelphia Temple. And you know what's funny? How much longer would I have lasted at Gidenagri anyway? Like if yeah. somebody ordered me stay here six months maybe before I'm just like, I'm so isolated. I can't take it anymore. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. some people are like this. Some people are introverts. They probably would love to just be at the temple by themselves and not see people. I'm not that type of person. Yeah. So even though Gita Nagri was, um, was upset about it, they actually got, uh, they actually got another, uh, another brahmachari there um, to do work. So he kind of like took my place. So I think they were, satisfied with that <laughs> um and he was like a strong mexican kid i don't know where they got this guy from but he was like 
you know, he was ready to do some work, you know, yeah, so yeah. he was, he was a good replacement for me. But uh, I immediately, I, I really, you know, had an affection for Ravindus Ruprabhu because I was like, I got this genuine sense that he's looking out for me. Like he's trying to understand what's, here's a kid, a young kid that's interested in Krishna consciousness. Like that doesn't happen every day that you just get a, you know, especially back then, you know, Krishna consciousness was way smaller, mm. you know? So to get a young kid who's just kind of sincerely into this, why make it harder for him? Why not make it the easiest for him where he's going to have a place where he feels, you know, comfortable that he can practice Christian consciousness in. So I really felt like he was looking out for me. And, you know, in the end, obviously that was the right decision, you know, cause I came and sheltered, you know, kind of really blew up and, you know, got big and we influenced a lot of people. And that was a place where I could use my talents in Krishna's service. Was the aim of shelter always, okay, we're going to share Krishna conscious lyrics, Krishna conscious philosophy with young people. 100,000%. So that it was, was, was it. fully intentional. Yeah, fully we we're going to spread Krishna consciousness through through music. Amazing. And that's exactly what happened like on a yeah. huge scale. Tell us a little bit about what was it touring like being a devotee you know like you were brahmachari but at the same time like you all had sikas you all some of you were wearing dhotis on the stage and things like that like what was that like in the sense of your own practice because with with touring comes all kinds of things fans girls you know drugs even people are doing i mean it's straight edge i guess so maybe not that but like fame and things that are not exactly conducive for a devotee right well when i did shelter like one of the things that I told myself when I did Shelter, because I tell you, even though Youth of Today wasn't some huge band, in the hardcore scene, we were like Guns N' Roses. You know, in that like subset of hardcore, like, you know, if you were a straight edge kid and me and Ruggenoff walked into the room, it was like, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards just walked into the room. Like they were just like Ray and Purcell. Oh my God. Like they couldn't even believe we were real. You know, that was like yeah. the level of, you know, you know, kind of like adoration that we got. And I think we got it even more because youth of today really changed a lot of people's lives. You know, even just, you know, this whole thing about vegetarianism and positive living, I think there was a lot of kids that were on the edge of the punk scene where they could have gone one of two ways. They could have gone the dark punk route where they got very nihilistic and got into drugs and got into, you know, fights and stuff like that. Or they went the youth today route and their life actually got better and they got off drugs maybe. And, you know, they started to look at the world in a little light, a little with a little more light. And kids were so appreciative of that. So kids really looked up to us, you know? Yeah. And I found that that mess with my head. You know, it makes you bigger than you actually are. It makes you, it makes you seem like you're bigger than you actually than you actually are. Yeah. And I could understand that in my own life, I didn't have my act together and the life was all about, you know? Uh, I was as lost as anybody else. And you know, especially when I started getting into Krishna, I that was 
perfectly obvious to me that, you know, I was lost and I needed some guidance in my life. And, you know, also with, with being in a big band, there's competition and you're always afraid that somebody else is going to knock you off your place. And then once you start making money, you start fighting about money and, you know, there's a lot of distress that comes with it too. I can only imagine, you know, I've actually rubbed elbows with a lot of like big bands and you can see that they have fame, they have money, they have popularity, they have fans. And a lot of them just, you know, they're not the happiest people in the world. Mm. So I was, you know, I, I knew that going in with shelter. Like I originally, I didn't want to do shelter. I didn't want to kind of play music again. So I really said, okay, I'm going to try to do this, but I'm going to simply try to do this as a service for Krishna. And I was like, I'm really going to make an effort to do that because I didn't want it to become anything else. Like I didn't want it to be something that was going to inflate my false ego because I knew that was just going to, it wasn't going to lead to a good place. It wasn't going to make me any kind of progressive person. And so I think from the get-go, I think the whole band was like that. But personally, I really like me. I was like, if I'm going to go and play music again and play hardcore, I'm going to try to do it in a different mindset. I'm going to try to do it as a service. And that made all the difference. It really did. You know, it's like, you know, uh, a, a person can have so many, you know, gifts. But if they use that kind of in the service of their false ego, even if they get fame and money and stuff like that, they get all the downside of that. But you can take that same thing and you can do it for Krishna and it becomes the most liberating thing in the whole entire world. Right. So I felt great about it. I love doing it. I love that we were getting, you know, kids, you know, introduced to spiritual life and interested in this thing that had kind of like revolutionized my life and, and really, you know, brought so much happiness and joy into my life. It was such, it was such a pleasure to just be able to share that with people. And so it, so it was like all the upside of being in a band with none of the downside. Wow. I think the downside started coming in later when um, the band got big and we were all weren't brahmacharis anymore. And we were trying to navigate, not being brahmacharis and living in the temple. And, you know, you get into a little Maya and, then you have to start worrying about money and then the money thing creeps in again. But at least for those first few years when we were all brahmacharis, I think, it, I think we had very pure intentions. And I think that's why the band had so much success. Do you think that that level of the spreading of Krishna consciousness to young people can happen again or was that like kind of like the 60s where it was like Prabhupada's time there was like that perfect kind of a perfect time where you know in the 60s people were hippies looking for spirituality in the 80s late 80s 90s when you guys were kind of going around that was like a perfect time where straight edge people were so ripe for Krishna consciousness do you do you things like do you think things like that are cyclical or do you think that it, it was like just a special time on its own I would like to think that it is cyclical, but it's really mysterious to me that it never really happened again. Yeah, yeah. You know, we just figured, okay, we got the Krishna core thing started. 
this is just going to go on forever. There's going to be young kids that are going to come up and devotees and they're going to start their own bands. And this is just going to be like, you know, straight edge kind of came like that. Like youth of today sort of established straight edge. And now there's going to, there's always going to be straight edge bands. And I was, it was also very, it was very peculiar to me. Like, why isn't the Krishna core thing like that? Why aren't there young kids that are doing that? And I don't know why. I hope, I really hope it's not a, a perfect storm. Like you said, it was just a blip in time yeah. where, you know, me and Raghunath were personally very kind of, um, uh, you know, well-known in this hardcore scene already. And because we got into Krishna, it kind of created, it created um, some waves. I don't know. I, I really, I really hope if there's any young, energetic, <laughs> devotee musician kids out there please man start a band go out and and spread music because everybody loves music you know yeah. what i mean everybody and especially like young american kids and even like european kids they love edgy music yeah you know the thing about shelter is you know we always wanted to try to we were our mindset was how can we build a bridge to all this weird stuff, you know, because back then it was very weird. Like we were, we wore T-lock and, you know, we had robes and we would play mantra yeah. music and we would do a kirtan before we played. And that's so bold. I love it. Yeah. We were super bold. <laughs> <laughs> we were just rolling with like a dozens of Ramacharis light up big, you know, packs of incense. And have a kirtan right in front of the stage before we play. We'd be like, Jayagora, Nitai, Jayagora. You know, it was pretty awesome. Wow. And you just watch people, they would just be like, What is happening? <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, oh, yeah, I, I I love I love that um that era, and I think that it's yeah, it's such a such a different time. But you know what I was gonna say was that the those devotees that joined during that time, they they were built differently in the sense of they they stuck to Krishna consciousness throughout a lot of them. Like for example, like I see a lot of those devotees now, like who I mean at that time who became devotees through shelter, through the hardcore scene, straight edge, etc. Like they're still devotees, like in their own ways. Like they stuck to it. A lot of them. And I noticed that because, you know, you see them during Rathiyatra time or, you know, Vasapuja time of different gurus, et cetera. And they're still like devotees in, the, of, in their own right. Well, well, I feel like people who join later and maybe not through the, the hardcore scene, they might have just kind of got estranged or I don't know. There was some kind of community, I felt like. I guess that's my, my <coughs> There was a community around the straight edge Krishna core scene that kind of, even though the, the Krishna core was gone, at, now it's gone, it's the devotees kind of still kept that community that they were in. A lot of people became really serious devotees from that scene. So many. It, blow, it blows my mind. I meet people, like I meet more people, you know, whenever I travel. Yeah. You know, someone will come up and Hari Bowl, I became a devotee because, you know, I got a shelter record. You know, I'll be in like Europe. I'll be in South America. I, it was wild. I, I lived in California a few years ago and I went to the San Diego temple. Yeah. And I went on Thanksgiving. They have such a great Thanksgiving program there. They make all this like kind of mock Thanksgiving things. And, you know, 
Thanksgiving for for an American devotee is like the worst holiday of the of the year. You got to go home to your parents' house and your brothers and sisters. Everybody's talking a bunch of prajalpa, and there's a carcass on the table, and you're just like, <laughs> oh my god, when is this going to end? You know. But they have this really great program, so I I went there for um, Thanksgiving, and afterwards they have a really nice kind of like backyard kind of thing, and I was hanging out back there, and the pujari, the head pujari came out and he gave me a whole bunch of Maha sweets. And he said, you know, uh, shelter, I was a hardcore kid and I drank and I did drugs. I was like a punk rocker and shelter played. And I, I think it was like Buenos Aires or something like that. Shelter played. And I remember I was just so struck by the band and just like how you guys looked and uh, and you were selling all these books at the table and I, and I got some of the small prob pod books and I got some beads. And he said, the next week I moved into the temple. Wow. And he said, he said, I practically have not moved out. He's like, now I'm married and I have a family, everything, but now, you know, I live here at the San Diego temple. And this is what he said to me. I was so psyched to hear this. He said, oftentimes when I do the puja, every day a lot of times you and raganath will come up in my mind and i'll say prayers of gratitude because it was your band that got me into being a devotee he says often when i'm doing a puja i'll say some prayers when i'm on the altar for you guys and i was just like wow wow you know that's pretty incredible I got a feeling that it's just going to be the prayers of these people that we made devotees that's going to carry me back to Godhead somehow. <laughs> totally. Totally. I mean, thousands and thousands of, I mean, for people who don't know, because like we have a lot of international listeners, like for people who don't know about the Krishna core scene, Google it, please Google it. There is an amazing amount of devotees that were created between 90 you know in the 90s basically and who are still a lot of them who are still devotees who still identify as devotees but who are older who have families etc but they're still devotees because they came in contact with people like Parmananda Prabhu, Raghunath Prabhu during the shelter times and you know shelter 108 there was a, a number of bands uh who were who were under the Krishna Corps um you know uh Banner, the, the banner. <laughs> you know, the, I was just gonna flag. Yeah, the banner of Krishna core. Uh, so that's it's just it's just so phenomenal. And uh, and I mean, I grew up during that time, and I was like witness to. I grew up in the t around the Tawaku Temple, and that temple was a hub for sent a uh, kids who were who joined a hardcore. I mean, the Krishna core and uh, Krishna core through uh, Krishna consciousness through Krishna core, and they were sent to these temples like Philly and you know, New Jersey, New York, all of them. And I was like, with my own eyes, seeing all these people come to the temple, become devotees, and then, you know, just flourish. And it was just uh, an amazing time. And I, I know, I just want to thank you for, for all you did. And I can understand from talking to you why, you know, it wasn't just Raghunath's charisma, but yours as well, in the sense of like, your positivity just comes out. And I feel that's really important for people to, uh, to get in touch with and and then if you if you say okay this is something that helped me they'll of course they'll take to it you know 
when I got initiated, the day that I got initiated, you know, you get initiated and you're like just super fired up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after I got initiated, you know, I had a, all the initiates got like a private darshan uh, with my guru. And I walked in there and I was just, I, I said, Guru Dave, give me a mission. Like I wanted like this Prabhupada kind of mission. I was like, no, I'm initiated. Give me like a life mission of what I should be doing. And he just laughed. <laughs> he just laughed like at this, you know, false enthusiasm, this Utsahamai of this like, you know, young kid, you know, trying to get a life's mission. But then he got serious and he actually was thinking like what he was going to say to me. Yeah. And then he looked down and he said, do something big for Prabhupada. Wow. And so I always feel kind of like that shelter was that thing. Like my guru told me to do something big for Prabhupada. <laughs> you know, we tried to do something big at least. Amazing. But, uh, you know, another, th another thing that's interesting about this whole Krishna core thing yeah. was we were making, you know, you know, before that whole Krishna core thing really hit temples were empty. You know what I mean? It wasn't like there was a lot of young, you know, kids that were clamoring over themselves to get into the doors of Krishna temples, you know, like it was not, it, it wasn't really like a thriving scene where, you know, a lot of people were moving into temples at that point. I want to interject a historical point is that this was right after kind of like the Zonalacharya time of ISKCON where a lot of there, where, where the temples were filled. And then as soon as kind of like, the crap hit the fan with that whole thing. A lot of the people had left, and that's why I feel the temples were empty. It's true. It was it was a very strange time for ISKCON. It was like we had just kind of, you know, the movement had just kind of grown past a lot of controversial things. Yeah, yeah. And this was just like only like a few years later, and it wasn't really like there was a dynamic. There might have been in some parts of the world. I'm not. I'm not sure, but at least in like the Northeast and the temples that you know I knew, it, it wasn't like that. And the, and the Krishna core thing really kind of revitalized a lot of younger younger people coming mm -hmm. to the temple. And so at the time, though, it was. I didn't even really understand the extent of it, but it was hugely controversial with the elder statesmen of of ISKCON, especially on the GBC. As a matter of fact. A few years ago, I did a, it was my guru's Vyasa Puja, and I did some offering about shelter. And uh, he came up to me afterwards and he said, Paramananda, you probably don't know this. Oh, I love but, it when people start, but, or start conversations. <laughs> <laughs> he, goes, he goes, I didn't even want to tell you guys this because I didn't want you, you kids to become discouraged. But at the time, there was actually a special GBC meeting called what are we going to do about shelter? And it was almost like the GBC was divided down the middle. You know, there was some GBC, all these people, all these young people are, are coming into the temple and they're wildly enthusiastic about Bhakti because of the shelter. Bed. Of course, shelter is a great thing. And then there was the other kind of like older school type of mentality that this is, Prabhupada would have been disgusted by this, this <laughs> hardcore music and the screaming and the mode of ignorance. This isn't becoming of devotees. This isn't Vaishnava behavior. We should stop this immediately. This is an embarrassment to Prabhupada. Wow. A lot of senior devotees thought that way. And, um, but my guru was a huge champion for it.
and yeah. and he actually wrote an article about shelter in back to godhead magazine did you ever see that i probably have yeah it's a really really cool article that just basically said like here's this here's these kids they're in a band they were in a previous band so they already had the influence of the scene yeah. now that and he was telling about how we went to a show and like there's people with like oh yes yes i did read that yeah you know there's people with like huge pants you remember in the 90s everybody had the really big jeans right and you know the, these kids would walk up with strange haircuts and huge pants but they were buying bhagavad gita's left and right you know and, and beads and he said like i think he said like one kid came up to him and was asking him all about krishna and he said parmanand i wrote that article as kind of like a smoke screen so shelter could continue because there was a lot of senior devotees at the time that really just wanted it stopped wow and um i was so i was so appreciative of him and he was such a he was one of those people that you know now i find that iskon and you know bhakti in general it's such a broad-minded inclusive kind of thing right you know and because of that kirtan is almost mainstream nowadays you know with the whole like yoga thing you know you get yogis that are interested in it mm. and, and it's really due to people like him that were very broad-minded people that had a much bigger scope of how are we instead of just being this small group of like weirdos like how can we make this accessible to other people and instead of making it harder for people to learn about Krishna, shave yeah. your head, put on this robe, put on tilak. How can we make it easier for them? Yes. You know, he was one of the first people that had that kind of vision. And and uh, you know what else I really appreciated about him that he actually really cared about us and he cared about us as as devotees. And I think even even if we weren't making a lot of devotees, even if we were just out there and we were and we we're in a band. I think he still would have advocated for it mm. because he would have seen like, here's a bunch of kids. They're creative. They're musicians playing music comes naturally to them. Why not just have them go out and play music for Krishna? Like even if other people didn't appreciate it, at least they're engaging their God given talents in something that's enlivening for them. You know, as before, you know, before it was just like, oh, you came to the temple, you're a brahmachari, go out and do books. There was like one service, go out and do books. You either cook and clean at the temple or you go out and you do books. And that was like your only choice. Mm. And, you know, for a lot of people, they don't fit in either of those boxes. But a broad-minded person is going to think, how can I take, how can I give this person a service that's going to enliven them and they're going to be able to like, you know, really throw themselves into it. And so I think there was a lot of that with um, Ravinda Shrupa Prabhu and a lot of the other, you know, senior devotees that really, you know, Gunagrahi Maharaj, you know, Donadar Swami. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of, of sannyasis and senior, and senior devotees, Sridhar Swami. Right. <clears throat> um, that really kind of advocated for us in, I didn't even know, but I guess it was kind of a hostile environment. Yeah, of people that were just like, stop this at once. Yeah. 
Uh, what so was I, fast forwarding a little bit? What was what was the kind of events or like Ritavich Swami? I can't leave him out. Yeah, he's another course. great advocate of Krishna Kaur. He came yeah. on tour with us. So wonderful. Awesome. What was what were the um, so after so how long did kind of shelter like hit its like peak before it was before it became like okay now it's kind of we're like not phasing out but it's like okay the band and the band members have to do other things I'm I'm sure you and your life had to do other things. We you ever um, you ever hear that story about you know after the Battle of Kurukshetra, Arjuna went to fight. There, there was a bunch of like basically gypsy kind of cowherds men. Yes, yes. And they, you know, stole away a bunch of the women of Dwarka. Yeah, yeah. And so Arjuna went there and it, it was like a band of gypsies basically defeated Arjuna. Yes. Who was like, you know, the most powerful warrior in the world. And then Arjuna realized that, like, oh, it was actually just Krishna empowering me. And now that the battle of Kurukshetra is over, now I'm not empowered. And right. he perfectly understood where his power came from. It was almost like that because when Shelter <laughs> put out that record mantra, we were, we were so big and it just seemed like the next step for us is we're just going to be legit rock stars. Like it was really like, we had just gone out, we did an arena tour with No Doubt when No Doubt were the hugest band in the whole world. They had a number one single, Don't Speak was a number one single that whole time that we were on that tour. Wow. And so it just seemed, okay, we're going to do our next record and then forget it. The whole thing is just going to blow open and we're just going to be like millionaire rock stars. Right. Uh, and then we put out that record, Beyond Planet Earth, and it just tanked. <laughs> and nothing went one? right. Was that the one with Varaha on the uh, cover? Yeah, it had Varaha on the cover. Yeah. And it almost seemed like nothing went right. And the band just like, instead of going up, the band just went right off a cliff and went right down. Mm. And um, I don't know. I think it was just like Krishna was like, okay, this is the time to wind this up. And you what know? did that mean? What did that mean exactly? Like the band, like it just discontinued and you went on your ways? Yeah, we basically all got married and started families, and yeah, um, we did do we we did a another record beyond planet Earth that we toured on a little bit, uh, but it wasn't like that whole huge kind of you know Krishna core wave in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, it was it was still I mean we still kind of play shows and you know people come and the shows are packed and everybody's singing along, yeah. but it was like you know back then it was really it was a phenomenon for sure right. right i remember like more recently i mean it's not recently probably when i was a, a little bit older i mean like 20 something and I, I saw like an album come out like 100 summers or something like that well that was when 20 summers passed that was the that was the right. next record we did when we kind right, of right. and i was like oh man these guys are still around because I, like, I like kind of lost touch for a while and then okay well this was that was good um yeah and then so you started families and then and then somehow both of you, Raghunath, also you, you got into kind of the yoga world a lot. How did tell us about how that? How did that happen? Well, Raghunath was always naturally great at yoga. Like we would do, we would go on those shelter tours, and he'd be doing yoga, and he's like, he can do incredible backbend. I mean, he's just like a natural, super 
flexible person. So yeah. it was, um, it was just another thing that he was just really good at. And so I think, you know, after shelter kind of, um, broke up and, you know, I think we just kind of ran our course and he was just looking for a way to, you know, because at that, I, I remember when I quit shelter, you know, uh, my first son was born and I just couldn't leave for six months, you know, and go on tour and tour Europe and, you know, and go straight to South America anymore. So, you know, I'm like a young man in my early thirties. I don't know how old I was. I was like 31 or 32 or something like that. And it's like, what am I going to do with my life now? Yeah. My whole entire resume is the only thing that I've done since I was a kid was playing punk bands. Like that's just not going to fly. I quit college. I have no college education. Wow. You know, I've only been in punk bands. Like, how am I going to support a family now? Like I, like I have a kid to take care of now. That's a legit concern. Yeah. And I think Raghunath must've been in the same way. You know, he was probably like, what am I going to do now? And, uh, he became a yoga teacher, which was, which was perfect for him because he was always really good at it. Uh, you know, especially back then when he was like young, um, he, you know, it was amazing because later on when I became a yoga teacher, you know, uh, and I learned about the whole yoga scene and who the bigger teachers are. And, you know, I sort of became part of that whole scene. There was a, there's a teacher, his name is, um, Dice Lita Klein. And he's very super, he's one of the most famous yoga teachers in, in America. And his big thing was like handstands. He was one of these early guys that did a bunch of handstands and arm balances. And so I followed him on Instagram. And one time on his Instagram, there was a picture of Raghunath. He posted a picture of Raghunath. And wow. he said, I'm so grateful to, uh, to one of my early teachers, Raghunath, who first, who first taught me how to do a handstand. <laughs> and I was like, what? And so I immediately called up Raghunath. And I was like, Raghunath, did you see what you know, uh, a Dice put on his Instagram? He was like, "Oh yeah, I, I when I uh, when I worked at a at a yoga studio in Beverly Hills, he used to come to my classes, and I taught him how to do for taught him how to do his first handstand." And uh, so Rugnath was like, he was really early on in the game, like he was right there when yoga started getting really big, yeah, and when yeah. handstands started to become a thing, and arm balances started to become a thing. Like people don't realize that he's a real pioneer of like modern yoga. Like no joke. Like Rugnath is legit one of these guys that that pioneered a whole new scene of yoga that we know now handstands and arm balances and really strong classes and power yoga and stuff like that. Right. Um, so he naturally went into that. I was like, I was always very into the art part of being in a band, like designing the t-shirts, designing the album covers, you know? Um, and so I figured that, I wanted to do something creative, but what could I do that's creative that I could actually make money off of? And I went to, uh, I went back to school for graphic design. Oh, really? And I got all these different graphic design certificates and degrees and stuff like that. And I, I became a graphic designer and I did that for years. And the way that I got into yoga was, you know, I, I, I would do yoga too, just for like health. And I remember I used to just, you know, when I lived in Park Slope, I used to just go into Park Slope every, you know, in the park every day. And I would just do an hour of, of yoga. Mm. And um, 
when I started taking, and then Raghunath started teaching in the city. He moved back from California, started teaching in the city. And so I used to take his classes and I found that I was really good at this stuff too, because I have like a natural, just like, it's just karma. I just have like a naturally strong, lean body and things like handstands and arm balances, they come very, very easily to me. I was looking on your wiki. You're 55. You don't look 55 at all. It's, I tell you, it's yoga, vegetarianism, you know, straight edge since I was a kid. It really, you know, it, it makes a difference. Right. Um, so I was, I started going to Ragnar's classes and I found that I was actually really good at this stuff too. Mm. And so I was, I was a graphic design teacher and man, I, you know what? I just like, I got so sick of just sitting and staring into a freaking electronic box all day long for decades on end. It was just like, it just got to me. Right. And my boss at the time was like a real money hungry jerk. He, my boss literally straight up told me, he's like, I don't care about you. I care about making money. If I could figure out a way to pay you less and still have you show up every day, I would oh because God. that's business. It's nothing personal. I don't care about you. I just want to use you to make money. Like he straight up told me that. And I was just like, this guy's a jerk. I hate computers. I'm going to open up a yoga studio. Like I'm just going to reinvent myself again. And I was wow. just going to open up a yoga studio because that's what I love doing. Like I might as well learn how to make money, you know, doing something that I love instead of doing something that I hate. Yeah. And um, everybody told me I was crazy. Everybody told me I wasn't going to be successful. Everybody told me, don't do it. You're going to be bankrupt and you're not going to be able to feed your kids. And um, I just kind of had a little faith in myself that I could pull this off. And I opened up a yoga studio and it, be and it became super successful. It, it, that yoga studio became Super Soul Yoga when I moved to California. Um, I sold it to Raghunath. So I actually owned the studio before Super Soul Yoga. Oh, wow. And it was really, and it was really popular. And, um, uh, you know, I was able to make a pretty decent living off of it. I made as much off of that yoga studio than I did doing graphic design. So right. it, it, it was great. That's, that's how I got in yoga, got uh -huh. into yoga. And I think, you know, it's a good lesson for all people, you know, don't get some dead end job that you hate. It's, it's just like misery. Like my dad did that. And it's unbelievable yeah. that just, he did it his whole life. Yeah. And you know, it made him sort of miserable. I think you just have to figure out what you're good at, what you're passionate about mm -hmm. and, you know, figure out a way to, that you can monetize that. Yeah. What was your, what was your kind of connection with your Krishna conscious practice throughout the days after shelter, you know, cause People go through life's changes, family, you know, you had a dead end job then you got into yoga and things like what was your relationship with Krishna like throughout all that time? Well, I tell you, I was actually a pretty good devotee. I had to go around Sheila. I would chant my rounds, you know, dutifully every morning. I would, you know, I I'd wake up at five o'clock in the morning. I do my puja to my Giriraj. I chant a bunch of rounds. I go to work. I come back. I finish my rounds. Uh, you know, I would read the Bhagavatam. I was I was still kind of like dialed into what I was doing at the temple. Like I was, yeah. you know, I just had that, you know, I just had that in me just from living in temples for so long. That this is what devotees do. Yeah. And then I got divorced. And I tell you, 
that's when like, you know, everybody, everybody has challenges and struggles and things. And I was just like, from the time I was a devotee, even from when I was like married, there really wasn't any bumps in the road, like 16 rounds, you know, four regular principles, you know, worshiping Govardhan. But when I got, when I got divorced, something in me, I, I, I was actually mad at Krishna. Mm. I felt like I did everything right. You know, I, I, I tried to be dutiful. I tried, you know, I tried to, you know, to do everything and be a good grihasta. And I really felt like I tried my best. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not thinking it's, you know, what, what I should have done is thought it's your own damn karma. You know what I mean? <laughs> because one time we went to this really good, astro- this really good palm reader in Mayapur. And this palm reader actually predicted that shelter was going to get in this really bad car accident. And we got in a really bad car accident. And he said, and he said all this stuff about Ruganath that was true. Like, you know, Ruganath and how his father died and how old he was when his father died. Like this guy was an expert palm reader. It's one of these like mystical palm readers. And I was a brahmachari and I was thinking about like, I'm not going to make it as a brahmachari. So one of the questions I asked him was, um, I'm thinking about maybe getting married and not being a brahmachari anymore. How does it look for my married life? And he took he takes one look at my hand. He goes, "You'll be divorced." <laughs> he wow. very flippantly said, "You'll be divorced." Um, but I had this thing that you know, Krishna, I, I I I did everything right, and still somehow I ended up divorced and unhappy and like miserable. And I, you know, my parents were divorced, and so I didn't want to get divorced. And yeah. somehow or other, it just happened. And for the first time in you know, I started chanting 16 rounds in 1992. And then I think I got divorced in early 2000s. And almost like overnight, I just stopped chanting. I went from chanting 16 rounds every single day, never missed a day, never. Even when I was in the hospital for three days and I couldn't chant after that car accident, I made up all those rounds <laughs> you know, for missing for, missing for three days. I never missed a day. I never missed a round for whatever, how many years. That's like, you know, uh, you know, that's like almost, you know, over well over 15 years. Right. And just almost overnight, you know, you know what happened? Donadar Swami came over to my house. Uh, I was, I was still left at the house. My wife moved in, my ex-wife moved out of the house with the kids. And I was going to move too. She was, we were, we were both going to move to Gainesville, you know, not together, but we were both going to move to Gainesville. I was all for it because I really wanted to live near Alachua. Yeah. But I had to stay home and sell the house. And we had a buyer for the house all set up. It was only going to take like two weeks. And then I was going to move down to Gainesville, but the buyer pulled out. Oh. And it was right at the beginning of that housing crash remember the big housing crash back then it was right at the beginning stages like the market yeah. was just like falling out everywhere yeah and we had the house was supposed to we had the house we had a buyer that i think a buyer was going to buy the house for something like three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and then we put it down to three hundred thousand then we put it down to two hundred fifty thousand then we put it down to two hundred thousand and this house wasn't selling Oh and months were going by and like I hadn't really seen my kids and I was like just in distress and I was in I was under a lot of stress like I had just been divorced and I was first time in my life like being separated from my kids 
and trying to sell this house and the house wasn't selling. And like, it was super stressful. And I wasn't chanting because I was mad at Krishna. <laughs> I was like, why is Krishna doing this to me? And then Donadar Swami came to my house and he was um, checking up on me. He was, he goes, I, I'm just about to go to Vrindavan. I just want to check up on you, Parmananda. How you doing? And I was like, Maharaj, I am not doing good. <laughs> you know, I was like, he's like, how's your, how, but how's your Krishna consciousness? I was like, not good. Like for the first time since I became a devotee, I was struggling in my Krishna consciousness, like really, really struggling. Right. And um, he said, but you're still worshiping Giriraj every day, right? And I said, and I hadn't worshipped, I hadn't worshipped my Sheila for probably like maybe six weeks or something like that. And uh, he goes, but you're still doing Manasapuja, right? And I said, nope, Maharaj, nothing. It's just sitting in a box. And he said, Paramananda, go in that house right now. And give me that Govardhan Sheila. And I'm taking him back to Govardhan Hill. I'm putting him back to Govardhan Hill. He's like, on top of all of your other problems that you're going through right now, you're going to make offenses to Govardhan every single day by neglecting Govardhan? You can't do that. He goes, you're, he goes, look at you. You're in no shape to worship a Govardhan Sheila. Go bring me that, that deity. When he said that, you know... Do you have do you have a, a Sheila or do you worship deities? I worship deities, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine you know you know how attached you get to your deities? Like, can you imagine if somebody said, We're gonna take your deities away from you now? Wow. Yeah. It was literally like on top of all my other problems, it was like a thunderbolt like went through my heart. Like I worship that deity every single day for an hour for five years. Every morning, woke up five o'clock in the morning. First thing I did was worship that covered on Sheila. Um, I went in the house, I got the box, Maharaj opened it up, looked at it. He said, sorry, Parman, I, I, this is for your own good. I got to take this deity away from you. You're making offenses every single day. And he goes, God knows when you're going to be ready to worship this deity again. I got to take him away. And so he took him. And then the very next day he took him and he, and he brought him back to, uh, to Vrindavan. Wow. And that was like, that was like my real, that was the start of my real story the dark days of <laughs> my Krishna consciousness. Right. Like I got, I got, I got in Maya and, you know, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't doing anything like I wasn't smoking crack or anything like that, <laughs> but, but right. you know, yeah, you know, watching a lot of TV, not practicing Krishna consciousness at all. Um, luckily, eventually the house sold and I moved to Alachua and, um, you know, Malachi was such a great devotee community that it's almost hard to be in, in Maya when you're in Malachua. So, you know, when I got back down there, I started chanting. And there's a lot of devotees down there that like Chadaratma and, you know, people like that, that kind of ripped me right out of Maya. <laughs> uh -huh. But yeah, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. And Thanks for always, sharing that. It's always kind of, you know, it's always kind of a struggle. You Were you a brahmachari? Yeah, I was for two years at the Bhakti Center before it was the Bhakti Center. This is like 2007 and 8. Uh, Yagi Purush Prabhu's group. 
Yeah. 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 I remember that. You were part of that crew. Wow. Yeah. I was part of that crew. Yeah. And then I lived uh, about two, almost two years in Vrindavan at the 24 hour Kirtan. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. You know how it is then. Oh, totally. You you go from that lifestyle and then you go to a greenhouse lifestyle. It's a big transition, especially back then. Like now, you know, Manu told me that when he um, wasn't a brahmachari anymore, they had like a, when I put on white, it was almost like a disgrace. Right. Like it really was just like, you can't hack it as a brahmachari. Oh my God. Did you hear Parmenon put on white? How embarrassing. Like that's really like what the mood was, especially at that Radha Govinda Mandir with all those brahmacharis. Yeah. It was almost like, okay, you've given up on Prabhupada's mission. Go off and move out of the temple and, Get in Maya. We'll like, stay you, here and hold down. Did you the did you fall in a bucket of Clorox or something? You know, like yeah. things like that. I remember. Yeah, it's not like that, I, and it's so much healthier now that, like, you think of Madhu told me that he had a graduation, and like they right. they almost make it like a graduation. Like now you're graduating. You've done you you know you, it's almost like college. Like you've done so much learn you know studying and learning, and now you're going to go off in the world, and they actually mentor you and they help you and they help you find jobs and you know nowadays i think people make it much you know the the bhakti kind of scene has made it much easier for that transition and as a matter of fact i mean is there any brahmacharis anymore? <laughs> you know, is that even like a thing anymore? There, just... there, there are. There, there's a bit endangered species, but there, believe it or not, there are a bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, nowadays it's much easier. It's like nowadays it's really like it's such a community-based thing anyway that um, yeah, even if you are a brahmachari, it's much easier to tran- you know to make that transition. But you know, back then it was just kind of like you were thrown to the wolves. Totally. And you just move out of the temple and it's very weird, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I always talk about that, like with devotees who've been brahmacharis, like in past episodes where it's like, what can we do to make people like you're talking about the graduation thing. That's a thing to make things easier for people to transition where they're not like full on, full on devotee. And then when, when it kind of like, they're not in the ashram anymore. They feel like abandoned. They feel like they Krishna abandoned them. The devotees abandoned them. They don't want to practice anymore. And then you don't see them ever again. There should be like a much more easy transition. Yeah. Now it's celebrated. It's, yeah. you know, when, when I was a brahmachari putting on white, it was like a stigma. It right. really, it really was. I remember yeah. when I was a brahmachari and other people would put on white and I'd be like, yeah, what happened that, to that, loser, that yeah, loser. loser that. <laughs> Oh, it was really fun talking to you. Um, I, I, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'd like to just ask you any concluding words for our, for our listeners, you know, devotees around the world who may be listening. Uh, well, I guess since we talked about shelter, I just like to say it was a really wonderful time in my life. And I feel really blessed that I was able to engage something that came so naturally to me. And, you know, something that even before I was a devotee, I was doing. And um, I really have such deep gratitude for all of the broad minded senior devotees at the time that really encouraged me and um, saw it as a good thing. And uh, I'm just grateful just to kind of be in that. It was like a special place in time. And somehow or other, I was just there. And uh we were able to you know, do a lot of service and, you know, turn a lot of people on to, to Krishna. 
And I feel really blessed to just be a small part of that. Something I, I'd like to call out um, that that I kind of gleaned from talking to you was your positivity. First of all, I love it. That that's something that I really sometimes struggle with, and and just to talk to you was like very inspiring to feel like okay, you can be you can go through all kinds of things in life, but you, if you have the right attitude, you kind of go through everything. Faith in Krishna uh, and and positivity is just like so helpful for moving forward. Another thing, your humility, like you know, you were such a big person, like in that time, in a sense, Raghunath, you very big personalities in the Krishna consciousness movement in the Northeast at that time. But your humility really shines through. And I and I really appreciate that about you as well. Um, so it's, you know, awesome. You're just like a, you're, you're a hero in my eyes. And I think for a lot of other devotees. I learned it from Sasarup Maharaj that first time I went to the temple. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. So cool. All right. Well, um, if you want to get in touch with uh, Parmananda Prabhu, if you like what he was saying, if you didn't like what he was saying, if you want to yell at him also, you can uh, find him on Instagram. Uh, that's his handle right there for all our audio listeners. It's at the hardcore yogi. He's a, he's an Instagram um you know, he has an Instagram page. He regularly puts up content and things like that. So you can find him there. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, so this episode will probably be airing. Uh, I would think anyway, it's going to air probably in a few weeks, but thank you for joining me again, Parmananda Prabhu. I really appreciate it. Nam Ross. It was an honor. I finally made it to your show. Yes. Uh, you know, when I saw you at at, at uh, His Holiness Radhanath Swami's program, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" I totally forgot that I wanted to interview you, so I wrote your name down on my on my board of of uh, you know prospective uh, you know uh, guests. And then I was like, "Okay, I got to do this one because this is going to be a fun one." And and it was. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Okay, stay on. Stay on. I'm just going to turn off the recording. Thanks everyone for listening. Hare Krishna. Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare